Hello and welcome to Low Orbit. I'm Josh Madison. Just real quick, I wanted to let you know that a new season of Low Orbit is on the way and we'll begin releasing episodes in February. But in light of recent events in the news this week, I wanted to try to help give a little historical context to some of the extremist right-wing violence that we're seeing. So on that note, I'm releasing the entirety of the documentary Shannon Geis and I made in 2019 into the Low Orbit feed. If you haven't heard it, it's called The Order of Death, and it's about the 1984 murder of Denver Talk radio host Alan Berg and the group of people responsible for his death. So without further ado, here's The Order of Death, Episode 1, A Driveway in Denver. So we're walking up Adams Street. A lot of the houses here are probably built in the early 1900s. Um, old brick houses, what they call the Denver Square. A lot of them kind of sit back a little bit. And then they're fairly well cared for at this point. Probably less so back then. But this is kind of the older Denver style of, of building houses from that era. So now, amidst all these Denver Square brick houses, is a more modern condominium, probably the 70s or 60s. Um, and this is where Allenberg lived. And you can see kind of balconies, and there are staircases on either side. I think, I think both sides have like four units. Um, We're standing outside of a condo complex just off of East Colfax in Denver, Colorado. If you look down the street, you can see the names on the marquee of the Bluebird Theater. This street probably looked the same, but Colfax was a little bit different in June of 1984. The aforementioned Bluebird Theater was a porn theater back then. There's an adult bookstore still there. But in general, Colfax is a little safer than it was 25 years ago. Because he would have had to have gotten out of his car to open the garage door. Oh, yeah. Because he didn't have a garage door opener. I don't even think those were that common back in 1984. Um, so he would have actually had to step out of his car to open his garage door, which is when they shot him. Um, okay. so On the night of June 18, 1984, Denver radio talk show host Alan Berg was shot to death in the driveway of his home. So his car was kind of parked like at an angle here, uh, right in front of the garage on the left. He was obviously going to get out and open up the garage door and then pull it in there. Yeah. Um, and so, and then his body was splayed out right here. And then if you look here, you can see there's bullet holes. So, oh, wow. yeah. So there's what? One, two, three, four, five, six that wound up in the garage door. Um, and they are obviously in an arc. So they must. Allen Berg was a radio host with a wide reach. He was the most prominent voice between the Mississippi River and the West Coast. This is the story of his life, his murder, and the rise of a white supremacist group known as The Order. This is The Order of Death, a documentary series about the assassination of Allen Berg and the ideology of the people who killed him. 
I'm Shannon Geis. And I'm Tosh Madison. put up one finger, which means that line one was a line to go to. Anyway, Alan Berger on his debut day on KOA News Talk 85. It's really good to be back in Denver. And I, yeah, I think a lot of you know what a outspoken critic I've been in Denver. And I will continue to be. I think that's part of what uh, I have been known to be in this town. And I say this, and I've said this so many times in the year before. I love Denver very much. I go back to 1951 here. And again, I know I'm talking to a lot of new people today. A lot of people have never heard me do talk radio before with KOA's giant. You're listening to Denver Talk Radio host Alan Berg. Think how much damage I can do. That was the excitement of it. You know, when, when Brian Cobb says, Alan, but you could come to work for this station and they could hear your rottenness all over the country. I says, how could I say no? Joel Day says, could you cut it down? Berg's voice was very well known in Denver. Everyone had an opinion about him. Even if you didn't listen to him, you probably had strong thoughts about him and his style. Uh, you're, you're brash, right? Is that what you're telling us? No, I'm a lot of things, Ethel. I think if you've never heard me before, you'll find I'm a lot of different dimensions, and I hope people can hear that in me. I hope I can entertain you. I hope I can make you laugh. I hope I can raise some interesting questions. I like to talk a lot about human behavior. I am an attorney by background. I practiced criminal law in Chicago for 11 years. I was in the music business. In the 70s and 80s, there was a new kind of radio talk show host on the scene. They were called shock jocks, or hot talk. They were loud, brash, argumentative, and rude. And they were massively popular. I do a certain type of talk. It is controversial to an extent, but controversy does not mean it has to be rude. That's, that's what I'd like. I mean, I've been known to be rude, and I think I have abused it at times. I really do. I think there have been times in my career, and somebody might say, well, you called a guy a creep today. <clears throat> that can, that, that's open to argument in that situation. But I know that for a long time, I was with a station where I actually accomplished the most, most rating-wise with a style of talk that I think is the worst I ever did. Allenberg was one of these shock jocks, and one of his favorite things to do on his show was confront racists and bigots. It was almost a sport for him, and it gained him a lot of notoriety. One more second. If, in fact, Andropov had Jewish blood in him, what would that prove about the Jewish conspiracy? I think the Jews are still firmly in control of the Soviet Union. I think they're responsible for the murder of 50 million white Christians. You think so, huh? Yes, I do. I think, I think you're sick. I think you're pathetic. I think your ability to reason and use any logic is Why a tragedy. Why don't you put a Nazi on your program, and then you'll have somebody... Can... Sir, you are a Nazi by your very own admission. That's Thanks right. so much. If he said that's right, you heard it. Okay, 861-TALK, 861-825. They had a poll in Denver to vote for the most liked and the most disliked radio personality, and he won both awards. And that kind of told you who he was. This is journalist and author Stephen Singular. Singular got to know Berg here in Denver before Berg's death. 
And after he was killed, Singular wrote a book about the murder called Talk to Death. This book was later made into a movie by Oliver Stone called Talk Radio. I'm Stephen Singular. Um, have been a journalist since 1973 or 4, which would be about 45 years now. Singular had just moved to Denver and... I was very happy to see that it was a, it was a great radio market, actually. It was better in some ways than New York. Uh, I lived in Houston, lived in New York. And I found it in some ways to be better. And I was uh, driving down the street in mid-September of 1981. I had been here about a week. And I flipped over to KOA, or I think it was KOA at that time. And I heard this man talking in this very fast, scratchy voice and just rapid fire. A little heat, a little furor in the afternoon. It builds the appetite. Okay, well, I'm going to build your appetite. Good. I don't particularly like you. <laughs> I don't like you. You think I'm so crazy about myself? No, I just I get like... up in the morning, I get sick looking at myself in the mirror. I would too. Okay. I mean We agree. So why are you going with this one? I just just like I'm trying to say something and you're talking about me. You always... See, that wasn't really what I was doing, was it? Yeah. No. I was kind of, I was kinda of kidding with you, wasn't I? No. Okay, go ahead. Make, much... Finish your point and when you're all finished, I'll react, okay? Okay, I think you talk about people that when people are trying to talk, you always zip in there and they never get their thoughts out, and then they lose the whole train in which they're going in. That's why I do it, so they won't show me up. Well, then why do you want people to call to talk to you then? Because insecure people do this. See, if I keep you off base, then you can't make a fool of me. Okay. You follow, make... Did you follow that? I doubt it, but give it you give it the best. So sleep on it, dear. You're on KOA. Good afternoon. You know, we try to get people on the radio who have smooth, you know, mellifluous tones. This guy was the opposite. So his voice was captivating, but far more captivating was he was saying, this is Yom Kippur, the holiest of Jewish holidays, and I want to talk about anti-Semitism. And I want people to call in, and I want to really get down on this, you know, really discuss it. Where does it come from? Why do people feel this way, etc.? His name was Alan Berg. He was from Chicago. He was obviously Jewish. He came here to start his life over. Let's go back a little bit more. Before Berg was on the radio antagonizing Denver citizens, before he wound up gunned down in his own driveway, I was a student at East High School in Denver, Colorado, and Alan uh, had graduated from high school in Chicago. He came out to Colorado University as a freshman and uh, became friendly with a lot of the fellows that I grew up with who had already graduated and were up in Boulder, and they introduced me to him. This is Judith Lee Berg, Alan Berg's ex-wife. I met Judith at her house last winter to talk about Alan's life and his convoluted road to becoming the most loved and hated man in Denver. She's a Denver native and is in her 80s, and she still is very active in the Denver Public Schools as a volunteer. In Alan and Judith's wedding photo, they're all smiles. She's around 5'3 and looks a little like Jackie O. He's taller and has a long face and a shock of short red hair. Later in his life, he'll be well known for his mop top and his beard, but back then he was clean cut, not traditionally handsome, but striking. Judith met Alan when they were both fairly young. 
He was in college at Boulder and would later transfer to the University of Denver to study pre-law. Ellenberg had come out to Colorado from Chicago. He was born on the west side on January 1st, 1934, but he grew up in an apartment there with his mother, sister, and father. They would later move to a house in Hyde Park. By all accounts, he was a relatively happy kid. His mother described him as a happy little boy, quiet, and very manageable. Ellen was raised among people who were of all kinds, color, kind, and creed, different religions. Chicago was a very liberal community, and in those days, there was not the strife there is today among the neighborhoods. It developed from the 50s on, the 60s and the 70s, but when he was growing up, it was more compatible. It, the, 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 the society, the members of society were much more compatible in sharing in their uh, religions, their habits, their cultures. There were a few dark clouds hovering over this happy childhood, though. One was that he apparently had a pretty serious temper, and the other was his father. Alan's father, Joseph Berg, was a dentist who practiced in a fancy south side neighborhood called Beverly Hills. He very purposefully did not reveal his Jewishness to his clients, preferring instead to be seen by them, in his words, as a Gentile. After work, Joseph would come home and rant about his clients. He felt very strongly about not interacting with the non-Jewish world unless absolutely necessary. Strangely, though, he was not very religious. He wasn't a practicing Jew and wasn't really a part of the Jewish community. Alan was never bar mitzvahed. And Joseph Berg was apparently pretty racist. Alan was not allowed to listen to jazz or any other music made by black people. That's too much applesauce, his father would say. Alan's sister described his father as very prejudiced against black people. As he grew up, Alan came to see his father as a hypocrite and wound up resenting him. And he was a good part of the reason why, at 17, Alan left home to move to Colorado for pre-law. Very soon after moving to Colorado, Alan met Judith Halpern. He was absolutely fascinating. He was brilliant, he was clever, he was funny. He had fabulous ideas about, about education, about life, about fashion, about art. And he, uh, he had a love of music, mainly jazz. And he was brilliant about the history of jazz and the, uh, the presence of the musicians and their, their instruments and their ideas. And he started a collection, a record collection. So we used to listen to music all the time. And I fell in love with him. We were married at Temple Emanuel in Denver, Colorado. After we were married, we moved to Chicago. And he practiced criminal law. Judy started working as a special ed teacher. And Alan began his career as a law clerk. Berg worked for a Chicago judge and pretty quickly became disillusioned with the work he was doing, and especially the low salary. They didn't have a lot of money between them, and he was concerned that they would never really get ahead. So one day, he learned of a practice in the Chicago court system where, for a kickback, a bail bondsman would point their client to a specific lawyer. So if I'm a lawyer, I would give a bail bondsman a little extra scratch and... And then the bail bondsman would make sure that their clients knew who you were, 
and they would retain your services. Gotcha. So Berg got set up with a bail bondsman who had taken a shine to him, and they began to work this scheme together. Now, scattered among the usual criminal types who came through this system, his bail bondsman friend also had some clients in the mafia. So it's important to note that he wasn't a mafia lawyer per se, but he became less and less choosy about who he would defend. And he started defending a lot of people who were involved in some pretty shady businesses. And he was paid very handsomely for that work. Because, not surprisingly, what with him being a good talker and all, Alan was very good at being a lawyer. And he did this for the better part of a decade, starting in about the late 1950s. There was something about Chicago that was very exciting and unique. And Alan, Alan became friendly with a lot of people who were in the mafia, actually. And he seemed to do so well in court and had the confidence of the judges, the police officers, and so forth. And as everybody knows now, the area of law and the court system was a little bit, a little bit crooked here and there. And I believe that Alan, he found the, his, his clients charming and interesting and seemed to get them off the hook in a very reasonable fashion. And as it worked, he became more and more prominent with that group. So let's pause here for a moment to emphasize something. Alan entered the law with some fairly high-minded ideals. He was very much anti-racist, anti-bigotry, and pro-justice. If he were around today, we might use the word progressive to describe his politics, although he was a little bit more complicated than that. And so being involved in a system where he was defending people whose morals he didn't agree with and who he knew to be guilty, well, it took a toll on him. And there was something else. As time went on, after we were married, we were living in Chicago, and he was practicing heavy-duty law, as I have just described. He started having epileptic seizures, and then he started drinking. He was trying to curtail the seizures with liquor, and it was just... It was something that was okay for a while, and then it wasn't. And he would go up and down and in and out. First he was sick, and then he wasn't. He just kept, he wanted to keep practicing law, keep his cases, and be as well as he could be. The doctors put him on medicine, seizure medicine. But I think the liquor was a problem. Alan seemed to be suffering from epilepsy and he started drinking in an attempt to manage it all. But he wasn't really managing anything, so things just kept getting worse and worse. The seizures started in his sleep, and then he had some sh uh, several seizures in court, in the, in the criminal courthouse, and, and somebody called me, and then once I went to get him, and, and um, I think the drinking started to cover up the seizures. Now in those days, it's all different now. In those days he took Phelantin and Dilantin and after a while that, that didn't work. Between the seizures and the unsavory clients and the disillusionment with the system of law he had sworn to uphold, in the mid-1960s Alan hit a wall. He burned out. 
if I'm not mistaken, he began to lose an interest in law for the simple reason that he saw and he realized what he was getting away with in the courts. And all of the rumors about the Chicago courts were true. Some people could handle it. I think he couldn't and, and didn't. It was, a, it, it was a double life. And Judy was becoming distressed about him and his health. I was worried and concerned for a long time, and then I realized we had to get out of there. So we moved to Denver. In the late 60s, Alan and Judy moved back to Denver, and they left the law, the mafia, and Chicago behind completely and opened a high-end men's fashion store. Here's Stephen Singular again. He was very drawn to clothing, to shoes, to haberdashery, style, fashion. And so he, he started a, a clothing store in the Cherry Creek area. His clothing store attracted some pretty interesting people, people well-known in the talk radio scene around Denver. One day, or over a period of time, a man came in named Lawrence Gross, who was on the radio here in Denver, and they would have back-and-forth repartee, and he could see that Berg was really talkative and had a lot of opinions and was very fast on his feet and all of that. And uh, he said, you know, you ought to come on the radio with me someday. So one day he went on, as I recall, it was a Sunday afternoon and the, and the Broncos, the Denver Broncos were playing. And of course, in Denver, the Broncos are religion and nobody's listening to this kind of talk radio. And, and he was on and, and Lawrence Gross was talking in this sort of mild-mannered, milk-toast, basic talk radio thing at that time. And Berg started to talk about more controversial things. It was just his nature to sort of be controversial, sometimes abrasive. People started calling in. And, and Gross was sort of surprised. And I think at one point he said something to the effect of, you're taking over my show. And it was obvious that he was a natural for talking and provoking people. He knew he had an instinctual sense of where those talk radio buttons are, you know, sex, religion, politics, uh, all of the things that are universally guaranteed to annoy people and stimulate them and, and get them involved. So he was on this trajectory, he would have been about late 30s or 40s, something like that. And in that period of time between, say, the mid-70s and when I first heard him on the radio in September of 1981, he'd gone through a real remarkable journey. And he'd sort of evolved from this somewhat quiet and in control of himself personality of the kind that I just described to being sort of this absolute wild man on the radio. And... Uh, just would hang up on callers, insult them, become abrasive or obnoxious at times. And But people listened and people interacted and this was something Denver had never seen at all. I mean, it was just a complete, you know, meteor landing on the radio landscape of Denver, Colorado. So his radio career started in earnest and he loved it. He took to it immediately, and people were interested in what he had to say. His relationship with Judith, though, that began to suffer. And then Alan just chose this radio career, and I was teaching high school. And 
then as time went on, he, I think, became, if I may use a word, unenamored. I think he fell out of love and he moved out. I would later interview him and he would say that he was very un unhappy at this time when he was doing all this on the radio, that he, he was, his marriage was crumbling. He'd been married to Judith Berg for around 20 years and they were in some ways a great match and in some ways, you know, not, not so much, but she was his great support and love of his life. He was doing radio shows, which he loved, and I had phone calls from Chicago, job offers that were fabulous, teaching at the college, at the university. I was teaching high school here, but it wasn't the same. So I moved back to Chicago. So he came to visit me all the time. I thought he'd come back. And then I realized that I don't think we were going to go back together. This was not going, he was not moving back. And he had a great career here. Let's talk about that career for a second. Alan fell under the general category of what were called shock jocks. He had arrived on the Denver scene just as this new breed of talk radio host was beginning to be heard across the country. The hyper-argumentative, confrontational style that we're familiar with today didn't hit its heyday until the 1970s. Alan's political perspective was from the left, not the right. And that was actually really unusual for that time, and it's still unusual for talk radio today. Of course, I, um, I heard the recordings. I mean, I knew what he was up against with his rhetoric. I knew th that he was antagonizing the, the audiences. Alan was almost angry with people who were against anything other than heterosexual, uh, what, what should I say, Christian life. Berg despised bigotry and prejudice. It was one of the central themes of his show. He would return to it again and again, calling people out, confronting them, challenging their beliefs. And it didn't matter if it was some random housewife or someone high up in some kind of white supremacist organization. And his shows would get very intense. Uh, I have been on programs like this many, many times before, and I run into fellows like you that interrupt and try to stop. Now, Jack, you have barely been interrupted so far, Jack. So don't give me that. Don't give me that garbage. You haven't been interrupted at all, man. Let me get this across, fellow. Go ahead, Jack. Let me get this across to you now. Yeah. I, I am not going to put up on any discourtesy. I'll be courteous to you as long as you're courteous to me. But I don't want any of this breaking in and stopping me when I'm trying to give a thought. Jack, when I think it's appropriate. Hold it one second, Jack. You're on my show and. As long as you're on my show, you'll follow my rules. You don't make up the rules. Hold it, Jack. You don't make up the rules on my show. You want to end it right here? Hey, Jack, go ahead. Both of you hang up, cowards. Go bail out right now. That's it. You saw it right there. That's it. These guys are going to come on this show and make up the rules. Not in my lifetime. No way. There was nothing rude in the initiation of what I did there. Are you still there, Pastor Peters? Pastor Peters, are you there? No, he hung up too. Okay, that's it, folks. All I can say is if they think they're going to come on the air, here and throw their anti-Semitic garbage uninterrupted without any challenge. That ain't the way I do business. Our number, 861-TALK, 861-8255. He was fascinated by race. He was fascinated by ethnicity. He felt that his father was somewhat racist, and it bothered him very, very deeply. And, and 
I think it just was a formative thing for him. And he was extremely sensitive about issues of race and and prejudice and all of those things. I mean, when it cuts that close to home, you know, that's that that can have a huge effect on people. And it and it had a big effect on him. He was on the other side of racism. It's hard. It's kind of hard to explain. I mean, where he was not racist at all, but willing to sort of dig into the sort of American complex, American, you know, racial realities that we all live inside of. This style of approaching racism and other taboo subjects brought him attention. He obviously welcomed some of the attention, but not all of it was restricted to people calling in on the radio. He continued to have these sort of verbal combat sessions with people on the far right or people who were associated with the Klan or other groups. And Denver had some people, uh, Colorado had some people north of Denver who were involved in things like the Posse Comitatus uh, and fellow travelers maybe with, with groups that were more radical than that. And in 1979, there was a man working at the Lakewood Fire Department named Fred Wilkins. And Fred was the local head of the Ku Klux Klan. And the Klan wasn't doing much. The Klan has a long history in Colorado that people may know about, but it, it wasn't, you know, they passed out flyers and held little meetings and things like that. They weren't, they weren't real active. But he would go after them on the radio, and one day Wilkins got upset, and he, he drove to the studio, and he went in, and he, he pointed his finger at Berg, and he said, you're going to die. And it was a it was a big brouhaha, obviously. And I, I interviewed Wilkins when I wrote my book about Berg, and he he didn't he was like, well, I just you know I was just sick and tired of this guy, you know, ragging on us all the time, and I'd had enough. I wasn't trying to hurt him or anything, but I just wanted to let him know that I was upset. So that was in the wind. Berg's radio career was really taking off. He was pretty well-known in Denver, even making a name for himself in the surrounding areas. But although he had quit drinking, his seizures were still a problem. He and I, he came to visit. We went to the movies in Chicago, and we were sitting in the theater, and he had a very big seizure. So I called the ambulance, and they came. We took him to Northwestern Hospital. Now, his mother and his sister came to Northwestern to meet me. The ne- I stayed there all night, and they came the next morning. And, and Mother and Norma spoke with this Dr. Segura from South America, and he said, Alan has a brain tumor. We need to get it out. The reason that Alan Berg was never diagnosed with epilepsy as a child is that he never had it. The seizures that he had been suffering from for well over a decade which he had been self-medicating with alcohol and had partially led to him quitting his law practice, were due to a brain tumor. So the only thing they could do was cut off the top of his head, cut his skull open. And it's like a can opener, opening a can of beans. They go around the skull like this and open it up and do their surgery. So Alan recovered, and he had 
a friend, a girlfriend, who came to drive him back to Denver. And I thought, you know, we can't keep doing this. We can't, we need to get a divorce because it's not working. And that was, that was what happened. He had a mop hairdo with a, a beard, but the mop covered his ears and his forehead and all of that. And it was basically, people thought, well, he just likes, you know, long hair or something, but it was basically done to cover up all the scars that had come from that operation. He went back on the radio. He, he was becoming somewhat more serious. And then I believe it was in 1981, KOA hired him here. It, it was 81, 82. And KOA is, was, of course, the flagship radio of, of that particular chain that they were involved in. I've been in California and Los Angeles and listened to Denver basketball games on the radio at night. It has an incredible reach. I think they said 25 states and, you know, however many millions of people that is. So they put him on at night, as I recall, so suddenly this sort of small-time radio guy is now on one of the biggest and most prestigious radio stations between the Mississippi River and the Pacific Ocean, and he has, he's reaching more and more people. And the, the sort of worst of that behavior begins to taper off, and he becomes somewhat more serious in interacting with people on the radio, and he does, he does more serious interviews. And so as 1984 begins, Berg is, I, I believe, sort of coming into his own on the radio. KOA had said, you know, we're going to, the, the Democratic Convention that August, I believe, uh, presidential year, you know, we're going to send you out there, you're going to cover this. I mean, you know, for a guy who'd been a wild man on the radio, this was a huge vote of confidence. You know, we're going to put this national event in your hands and you're going to act like a journalist and you're going to do that in August. Berg's career was reaching new heights. He toned down the rhetoric a little bit. He had some national exposure with an interview on 60 Minutes and he was slated to cover the 1984 Democratic National Convention in August in California. All in all, things were looking up for him. And that brings us to the night of June 18th, 1984. I came back here for my parents' 50th anniversary, and he said, I'll pick you up at the airport. And We went out to lunch, and then uh, I went back to my folks' house, and then he called and he wanted to take me out to dinner the next night. And so the next night, the 18th, we went out to dinner. And on the night of June 18, 1984, Alan Berg goes to dinner with his ex-wife Judith, who's in Denver for just a visit. They never were really came apart despite being divorced for the last six years. He had a girlfriend, but that was an off and on thing. He and Judith were tied together in a way that, you know, only happens with certain couples over a lifetime. And they were still very, very close. So they went to dinner in Lakewood and they drove back to his apartment, which is on Adams Street, right off of Colfax. We were going to go back and call his mother, and then he wanted to feed the dog. 
They pull up in front of the townhouse and don't go in the driveway. And their whole life together had basically been an argument. Are we going to stay together? Are we going to get a divorce? Are we going to do this? And now it, now it was, are you going to come in and are you going to stay with me tonight? Or are you going to go, should I take you over to your friends? Or your car in the parking lot where I picked you up? And they sit in front of the house and they talk and they talk. And finally, she sa he says, I'm tired. I think I better take you to your car. Judith's car was not too far away. He dropped her off and she drove out to the suburbs where she was staying with a friend. Berg drove his Volkswagen Beetle back to his house. He stopped the car in the driveway, grabbed his keys, dog food, and a lone cigarette. He started to make his way up to the staircase next to the garage door. A large American sedan pulled up to the driveway right behind Berg's Beetle. A man got out of this car, pulled out an illegally modified Mac-10 automatic pistol, walked up to Berg, and fired directly at him hitting him in the face and chest. Allen Berg died almost instantly. He was 50 years old. Judith found out about his murder right away, as soon as she arrived at her friend's house. And Judith Berg gets in her car and drives to her friend's house, which is quite a ways in the suburbs. Goes in the house on television, the image of the iconic images, one of the iconic images of the radical right, the rise of the radical right, the rise of the violent right in America, is Allen Berg. He was driving a Volkswagen. He is, <clears throat> he's got one leg in the car and he's lying in a pool of blood on the pavement in front of his townhouse. He'd bought some dog food and I think he's still holding it, and there was a lit cigarette, because he always had a cigarette in his hand. And there were bullet. he had a wooden door for his cars in front of his townhouse, and there were bullet holes in the, in the wood. Judith goes in the house. These people are watching television. They're watching this. It literally happened the last half hour. And of course, she realizes, number one, he's dead. Number two, the only reason I'm not dead is we didn't pull in the driveway, or I'd be dead too. The Denver police launched an investigation right away, and Singular began reporting on the story as well. I was still working at the Denver Post, and shortly afterwards I received a call from the editor of Rolling Stone. And he said, you know, why don't, why don't you write something about the Berg story? It was the first gunning down of a, of a media personality in America, as far as most people knew anyway. So it was, it, was, it was quite a big story right there, you know, just the fact that this happened. So uh, I said, sure. At the time, of course, we didn't know anything about what had happened. I remember interviewing the one of the police detectives on it and and I was in his office and I said you know do you have any suspects and he pointed at the phone book and he said yeah there are two million <laughs> everybody in that phone book one point or another was annoyed with this guy and so the general belief was that some lone wolf listener somewhere got worked up got a gun and killed Ellenberg in his driveway 
As the investigation moved forward, the city of Denver came together to grieve the loss of Alan Berg. Berg was eulogized in the United States, in Denver. People I remember were told to drive with their lights on or their lights off. I, I can't quite remember, but the point being that he affected a lot more people than you would have thought. He got under your skin. I mean, he, that was his, he, that he said, I, I'm an addictive personality and I will addict you to me. And he did it. And, and whether they liked him or whether they didn't like him, he provoked people, he made them think, he made them feel. And he did something that no one else, you know, in this market had ever done. And he was missed. And he's never been remotely replaced, which is also rather interesting. I think KOA after that, somewhat understandably, probably said, we don't, we don't want another flamethrower. <laughs> you know, this is too much grief around all of this. For better or worse, Alan Berg left a mark on Denver. But as Singular alluded to, being the most loved and hated man in Denver must have made an investigation into his murder seem like quite a daunting task. After all, he had been part of a lawsuit, had multiple death threats, and even had someone come down to the radio station to threaten him directly. But unwittingly, Berg was part of something much larger. So what looked on June 18, 1984, like sort of a random killing of a radio host was gradually evolving into the largest investigation into domestic terrorism in United States history. Next time on The Order of Death. From the mist-shrouded forest valleys and mountains of the Pacific Northwest, I bring you a message of solidarity, a call to action, and ultimately total Aryan victory. We learn more about the group behind Allenberg's murder, their ideology, and their plan for overthrowing the U.S. government. The Order of Death was written and produced by Josh Madison and Shannon Geis. It was edited by Josh Madison. Our theme song is by Matthew Simonson, and we had additional music by Kevin Richards, Lee Rosevear, and Moonlight Drift. We had additional production and research from Ryan Connell, and additional production help from Ray Solomon. I also want to give a quick mention to Lost Highways, a new podcast from History Colorado that explores overlooked stories from the American West and their impact on the nation and world. In particular, be on the lookout for their episode about Allenberg and his influence on the culture of talk radio and outrage for profit media. We'll have links to all of this in the show notes. <laughs>